This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good afternoon, listeners. My name's Erin Jones, and I'm your host today for the Beyond Zero Emissions show. We're going to continue in the theme that we started last week, which is really... Um, you know, doing a thorough investigation of the electrifying industries report that just came out very recently. And I'll have to say, it's probably one of the most important pieces of work that BZE has done, which is a pretty big statement given the number of the body of research that goes before it. But I think, you know, we're at a time and place now where it's really important to start tackling the more difficult issues. And certainly manufacturers' use of fossil fuels is one of those. It represents 8% of Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, that's a fairly sizable sum. And we all know, you know, going to renewables, whether it's solar or wind or, you know, um, small scale on rooftops is wonderful. But there's also a lot of processes and particularly industrial heat um, that traditionally have been fueled by fossil fuels. Uh, and that's what this report really hones in on, I suppose, is looking at alternatives, doing the research and presenting those so that... Um, industry players can actually see that there are alternatives and we can move beyond fossil fuels and powering these important industries which are really strong employers. The other thing that's really important to keep in mind is that as the transition to renewables does happen and it is inevitable, it's just time, uh, Australia will actually become um, or has all the natural attributes to become a real magnet for energy-intensive industries. And we've seen examples of that with um, the uh, Liberty One Steel, some of the statements that they've made and and, um, moving into Australia uh, around identifying that the amount of natural resources here is perfect for energy-intensive industries and the transition to renewables. So we're going to have a bit of a chat about that today. Um, We've got two guests on the show, um, one from state government and one from industry. So we'll kick on and um, get started with our first guest. Listeners, my name's Erin Jones and you are on the Beyond Zero Emissions show on 3CR 855am or podcast from the various services. And I'm really pleased today we're continuing talking um, on from last week's 
show around the electrifying industries work that BZE has recently launched and the summit that was that was held recently. And we've got Peter Hansford on the line, and Peter is from the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning and is the Manager, Business Development, Energy, Commercial Projects and Programs and the Climate Change Group. So welcome, Peter. Thank you very much, Erin. Um, look, it was... Uh, Really great to see the presentation that you gave at the Electrifying Industry Summit. Um, we had a number of, of um, government and industry and, and some businesses there, um, but obviously it's important to, to keep on with this uh, this work. Now, energy used to be something that was a relative minor factor within most businesses' expenses, but now it's become one of the biggest factors and most volatile factors that industry faces and has to factor into their business. So what I know that um, that the government has a lot of support programs in place and it is starting to try to work with industry around these um, waste and uh, energy sort of issues. Um, can you give us a bit of an outline of the work that you're undertaking? Sure. Well, you're absolutely right that uh, until about three years ago, both gas and electricity were relatively stable and, relatively speaking, a small percentage of operating costs. But, of course, that environment has changed completely now where um, energy can be between 10 and 40% of operating costs for any business. And so it's really critical that businesses get their head around how to manage those costs more effectively. And uh, so one of the things that we've been doing is just trying to improve energy literacy. Uh, a lot of small businesses don't even have anybody responsible for for energy management. Um, and so when we start talking about the various options uh, that they might have to take control, uh, they're starting from a fairly low base in terms of how the market operates and uh, how they can secure the best prices, let alone what projects they might invest in their own business. So in the first instance, it is really about increasing the literacy of uh, businesses around energy, and then it's about trying to connect them with people that uh, can provide a, a professional independent service and give them the best options available to either invest in energy efficiency or renewable energy or even uh, in the marketplace through power purchase agreements and so forth. Yeah, and we've seen some of, some of the bigger players, certainly, whether they are um, you know, building their own standalone facilities or going into power purchase agreements. But when you're kind of at the other end of the scale, and, and you know, we know a lot of businesses are, um, you know, in this small and medium size or small family businesses that may, you know, employ only a handful of people. As you say, that energy literacy um, is probably, you know, what right down the list and priorities in terms of, um, you know, the immediate nature that there's always something to deal with in business. So this probably gets tends to push to the back burner a little bit. Uh, what do you find there in the difference? And where's that kind of cut-off point where you find that businesses can kind of take the time to do that and, and, and how they might access more support? Uh, well, I don't know that we've necessarily identified what turnover or how many employees, but certainly if you're a business with 50-plus uh, employees, there needs to be somebody dedicated 
to taking responsibility for managing energy costs. That may not be a sole responsibility. That might be somebody that uh, is in charge of working with a consultant about getting the best deal, uh, electricity deal through a broker or so, somebody like that. But um, somebody needs to be accountable and responsible for taking, for looking at energy costs because they are now significant as as are other inputs to a business. Mm. And so when you're de- talking with, with business owners, what do they perceive as their barriers to adopting? Because we know, you know, there's a whole lot of energy efficiency measures. We've talked about, you know, accessing different types of, of renewable energy, you know, whether they've got the capacity and, and um, the suitability for something like rooftop solar or going into, um, you know, a power purchase agreement or a pooled kind of power purchase agreement. But what are those barriers to moving into more cost-effective technology, certainly within the within the um, facility? Yep. Well, the first one is uh, many businesses don't even understand how renewables might fit within their own business model. Mm. And sometimes that's philosophically driven, unfortunately. People reading the wrong newspapers or read, listening to the wrong radio stations and think that it's all bunkum. Um, so that's that's one hurdle that does present at times. The next is uh, trying to get independent advice because many businesses will tell you that they're being hounded by solar installers at the moment, offering all sorts of deals, and they know that these uh, consultants, in adverted commas, are often carrying commissions in their back pocket. So they really need to get independent advice, and there is that advice available um, by reference to either Sustainability Victoria or Clean Energy Council, both uh, list consultants that uh, are independent, so that's a good place to start. Beyond that, um, it's about identifying what is the best option, and often that is, just about always, that is a bespoke solution. If you're a food processor, you've got a waste stream. Is the waste stream able to be captured and converted into energy? Uh, if if you've got a large rooftop, then maybe solar might be a, an option. If you're in southwestern Victoria, for example, then um, there might be a way that a number of businesses can bandy together and, and do a, a collective procurement. So... It's really about trying to understand where the best options are. And then the next barrier is preparing a business case around those options because and a business case can, can be quite expensive, but I think that's one of the major barriers just at the moment for medium to larger businesses is getting that business case done. Once you've got a business case, you can take it to shareholders, you can take it to business owners, you can take it to the bank. And you can you can um, put a, put your hand on your heart and say we want to um, access uh, money for this particular project, and this is the payback period, and this is the internal rate of return. But without a business case, that becomes difficult. Beyond um, having a business case uh, signed off by a board of directors or or a, a bank, um, the, the next. Next problem is actually the best way of financing it. And there are increasingly innovative ways of financing these sorts of projects, um, including leasing, 
including um, uh, what they call uh, a retail PPA, where retailers might actually um, contribute to putting solar panels on a roof and and selling you the power that uh, at a discounted rate. So there are options that enable businesses to actually be cash flow positive from day one. Yeah, and I, th- I think uh, that's that's an important part, isn't it? That that's that is the case in in a lot more situations where, like you say, it's important what financing model to go down because. If you can, um, you know, basically have a win-win situation where from day one you're not paying more than you were previously, um, it's a lot more palatable to the cash flow of that business, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, yeah, we all know that uh, energy prices have actually caused many businesses stress and uh, the appetite for debt is not unlimited. So we need to think about how else these projects can be deployed without recourse to increasing the debt levels of often small and medium-sized businesses. Mm. But as you say, you know, these costs are significant. Um, So, you know, it does warrant the attention uh, to actually make these changes and look at how that energy um, consumption and... I mean, also at the other end of the scale, looking at at waste and um, the cost of disposing of that and how that could actually be better turned into um, a, a fuel source. And certainly in the video showcase that um, you presented at the Electrifying Industry Summit, there were some great examples there of businesses um, that are actually starting to use that waste. And certainly we've seen in some of the... well. I'm coming to mind, um, I think it's Sweden, but some of those Scandinavian countries where, you know, waste is really seen as a resource um, because you've got to pay for disposal in, in some manner. So we should be, you know, viewing that more as a resource. And there were some great examples of of some different um, businesses that are, that are developing that technology for themselves and, f- and for others in that showcase. And I actually um, saw on... Uh, a facility in WA, a fertiliser, soil fertiliser company that's using, doing a whole lot and producing um, waste and heat and electricity. So, you know, you know, the technology is there to do these things, um, and I suppose that was about the work that BZE did to kind of further those examples and, and industrial processes because we've seen for a while that, um, yes, you can put solar on your roof or, yes, you can go into a PPA on an off-site or, or a whole lot of ways, but, but actually looking at those processes within a facility um, that have maybe, you know, waste or, or gas-fired and converting those to, to more renewable sources. So... Um, it was interesting to see that that is, a, that is the case and I'm sure there'd be a lot of businesses that fall into that that space at the moment that are paying significantly for waste disposal who, who, who aren't really utilising that as a resource. Well, Australia is a uh, decade behind Scandinavia in terms of realising the, the resource that is available through waste streams. Mm. But uh, heartening to know that there's a lot more companies out there that are now interested in the space. And I do believe that over the next two or three years, waste to energy will be a very fast-moving uh, category as, as more companies start to understand that uh, 
there are costs involved, as you suggested, of disposing of this waste. And unfortunately, being a large country with uh, plenty of land, um, we're not constrained in the same way that many of those Scandinavian countries are in terms of what they do with their waste. In fact, uh, I think it's Denmark that actually exports its waste to Sweden for processing and then uh, buys some of that energy back. But um, these are some of the some of the challenges that businesses need to get their heads around in the future. And the thing about the showreel that you referred to <coughs> is that there are more and more Victorian and Australian-based companies that are taking up the challenge of developing resources, often in partnership with European technology providers, to provide those solutions. And I, I think we're, at every opportunity we should try and see what, what solutions are available from local sources. There are some very innovative com companies uh, in the space and others that are moving into the space that uh, we need to look look to to provide our own solutions. Mm. And there were certainly a lot of examples of some businesses doing that, so um, um, we might talk about whether or not we can put a link in the show notes to that video if that's available for the, for the public. Um, Absolutely. Because there was some excellent, you know, local examples. You know, we're always talking about, you know, Tesla and the big batteries and they kind of grab all the headlines but you know there's local technologies doing that as there is as you, as you alluded to around the um, the waste to energy space and I think it was energy 360 and so there is a whole lot of, of um, local innovation going on there and, and, and companies that are providing these solutions in the local space There is and as, as I said there's, there's more emerging into that space so uh, whether it's uh, grid scale demand management through a company like GreenSync, which has been very successful in the Mornington Peninsula, uh, but has also attracted the attention of uh, other countries, in, in particular Singapore, where GreenSync now has an office and is working with the Singapore government in terms of how to manage their energy demand more precisely and, and basically uh, offset the need to construct further generation and further distribution assets. Uh, Energy 360 and Capricorn Power were two that were on the showreel in the waste to energy space. Uh, Madge Effect, a small company based out in Dandenong uh, that are using lithium-ion phosphate batteries uh, more, much better suited to Australian conditions insofar as they can operate up to 60 degrees Celsius, whereas the Tesla battery has a defined temperature range that it, its warranties are valid for. Um, and then we've got companies like Raygen, who have a very exciting concentrated solar thermal, so generating both heat and power with a relatively small footprint because of the efficiency of the technology that's available. Mm, and some of our regular and long-term um, BZE listeners um, will be familiar with the solar thermal plant, which was as part of our research back way, way, way back in 2010 around the stationary energy work that we did. And so that Raygen technology is pretty interesting because it's kind of a combination of the, the, um, the large mirror technology 
and PV. Um, so it's sort of a super boosted PV type um, situation, isn't it? Yes, and uh, you know you may have previously looked at Sundrop Farms project in Port Augusta where they're using concentrated solar to basically provide heat and power, desalinating water from the Spencer Gulf, uh, providing the heat for the glass houses, but also the power for the, for the lighting and operation of the plant itself. So uh, these concentrated solar thermal technologies and, and others uh, that can rely on renewable energy as the power source are definitely the way to go. Uh, we need to get off fossil fuels. Uh, gas prices in particular have crippled many small and medium-sized businesses that, that have a heavy dependence on gas. And there are increasingly options available where the same functionality can be provided with renewable energy as the, as the source of power. And that's where we need to be heading not only to uh, reduce our emissions, but also because ultimately they will be cheaper than fossil fuels. Yes, exactly. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name is Erin Jones, and we're chatting today with Peter Hansford, who is from the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. And we're talking about... Um, the energy space and industry and the transition that uh, industry um, is making and needs to make to more renewable energy sources um, and the advantages that that can provide in terms of stabilisation of costs and cheaper costs uh, and utilising waste a whole lot better and, and um, the relationship between waste and uh, energy. So, Peter... If we've got people out there listening and, and they're, you know, they're in a business and they're um, struggling with energy bills and, and think they could probably be doing things better, I know that there is a lot of support offered by your department um, around a whole lot of different programs. So can you give us a bit of an overlay of, of what it is and, and where people can kind of reach out to if they want to? Yeah, well, this? I would say that there needs to be needs to be probably more programs that uh, take account of the different size and different uh, types of businesses but certainly Boosting Business Productivity which is a program that is uh, now nearing the end of its of its uh, time has enabled businesses to get an energy audit uh, offset with uh, a grant from the, the Victorian government there's uh, gas efficiency masterclasses uh, which are, and refrigeration masterclasses. So if you're utilising gas or, you, or refrigeration in your business, there, there's certainly masterclasses that are available to help with um, your management of those assets. But... Uh, there's also uh, other programs for companies that are large regional employers and have experienced such a significant increase in their energy costs that they are really struggling. So the government's keen to support businesses in that space that uh, otherwise might have to shed staff or or have their expansion plans 
reviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, but there needs to be there needs to be more focus, I think, on business because, uh, as I've mentioned a couple of times, the, the focus has been very much um, in other states, certainly, and, and including Victoria, on household energy costs. And uh, Ibis World recently did some interesting research in that space, which suggested that energy costs for households are about 1.7% of total disposable uh, household income average, uh, and that is actually less than that the average household spends on gambling or takeaway food or alcohol or going out for dinner, whereas businesses, as I mentioned earlier, energy costs could be 10 to 40% of their operating costs. So I really do think that if we're going to enable the economy to transform from fossil fuel reliant to renewable reliant, we must incentivise and assist businesses in their own transition. So I'm hoping that uh, there will be actually more programs available post the Victorian government election that will support businesses in that way. Yeah, and it's interesting how you frame that because the fact is if... um you know, if you consume the mass media, um, all we hear about, and look, it's relevant, but when you put it proportionately like that, is, is home bills. Um, and as you say, business is facing a lot bigger um, costs from energy. Um, and also, you know, in the other factors of, um, you know, transportation, there's a lot of business um, transportation costs. So, you know, there's a lot of emissions and costs wrapped up in this space. And um, as you say, we've, you know, governments uh, have been fairly, um, you know, there's been a number of programs for households, which is great, and it's great to see so many households with solar and, and um, you know, as, as time goes forward, you know, moving to batteries and, and the like. Um, but really, when we look at those those figures that you've just given, um, there's a whole lot more room there to support business, isn't there? And there's a lot more um, payoff, effectively, because there's a lot bigger impost on them. Yeah, absolutely. And when we look at uh, the breakdown across all sectors of energy consumed and emissions generated, uh, business processes alone account for 7% of emissions. But uh, when you take into account the emissions generated from transport, of which businesses are heavy users, and stationary energy and non-electricity energy, um, businesses uh, probably contribute about 16 to 20 percent of uh, total emissions and uh, so if we're going to be successful in in meeting our Paris obligations I think we need to look beyond the large-scale project and beyond the household to to businesses and giving them greater support uh, often often just through information but making that information accessible so one of the things that we've been doing and, and with featured at the Electrifying Industry Summit is uh, running a series of workshops to actually explain to businesses the economics 101 of renewable energy and energy efficiency and how to finance them. So we've run a few of those and uh, I would be expecting that uh, we'll be running some more next year as well. Um, We've been running them in regional Victoria and uh, we plan to do more in, in metropolitan regions as well. 
And so if people are listening and, and you know, that's really piqued their interest, uh, is there some in the, in the near future or how can they kind of uh, pre-register or put in an expression of, in, of interest for that? Right. Uh, well, all, they, all what they could do is uh, uh, make contact uh, via an email, energy at delwp.vic.gov.au. Um, that just uh, registers their names with us, and uh, as those workshops are organised, we we can let them know when and where they'll be held. But we tend to tend to try and keep them very compact. You know, three hours is about the time investment required because we know that uh, taking people away from their businesses also has an opportunity cost. Mm. So we try to deliver a lot of information. Um, in a short space of time, but obviously the networks that are gained and the uh, understanding of what programs might be already out there to assist them is delivered uh, through the, through those workshops. Mm. And what sort of feedback? I mean, are, are people come away from that thinking, "Wow, there's all this stuff that I never knew existed," or, or are they, you know, seeing the opportunities and starting to move forward from that? Or what's been the Com- combination? Um, yes, there's a lot of people say, "Wow." didn't realise that there are so many options available to us in terms of how to manage our energy costs effectively and also uh, we're hoping that through these workshops and uh, larger events that we've been holding uh, which which we call new energy roundtables, opportunities to network with technology providers and consultants that can provide them with the right sort of advice that they need to actually start work on taking control of their energy future. Mm. Oh, well, that sounds excellent. It's, um, as you say, you know, it's hard, obviously, people... Um, it's a cost to have people away from the business, but um, I think that sounds like a very worthwhile three-hour investment. So um, it'll be great to see those continue to, to roll out across the state. So, Look, I really appreciate your time today, Peter. Um, we've, uh, I, I know you're about to head off, so I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us today, and I thought it was important um, that we keep on focusing in on industry and um, the energy uh, mix all around how an, um, industry works and um, what the opportunities there are. Yeah, the only, the only uh, concluding comment I would make, uh, and it sort of picks up a thread that I've mentioned earlier, is that for most businesses it is a bespoke solution that they're, that they're requiring, and uh, but they they also need to do something almost immediately to reduce the impost that increasing electricity and gas prices are having on their their business. So uh, they may wish to actually have a portfolio approach. Uh, doing something behind the meter, certainly working with a with an energy broker to get a better deal. Uh, think about uh, whether they they should join up with with other companies in the same area or the same precinct to do collective uh, power purchasing, um, or through a if they're a large enough organisation through a power purchasing agreement themselves. But uh, I would say a portfolio approach in most cases is is definitely worth pursuing because uh, it's, unlike, it's unlikely there's going to be a single silver bullet technology that's going mm. to solve all their energy problems. Yeah, exactly. 
And look, I think it's important also, as you say, you know, the costs have gone up enormously um, for businesses to feel they can take back some control of that and that there are options and um, it's not a matter of just getting the bill in and, um, you know, feeling the anxiety of of the unknown of of that going up and up and so uh, there are steps that can be taken to to get um, more control over those costs. Absolutely. And uh, it's something that's important to those businesses but important to the economy as well. So we'd like to see as many homegrown solutions as possible because uh, we're hoping, of course, in this economic transformation away from fossil fuels that uh, we can create many jobs uh, in regional Victoria and, and elsewhere in manufacturing and supplying and, and deploying these technologies around the state. And, and I think that's a really important point to probably finish on is the fact that, you know, this is a, this is a great opportunity um, there is an opportunity for Australia to be um, a real energy leader and bring the cost down significantly. We've got all the natural resources to do it and to actually draw industry from offshore and different places or create new industries because we can, we have got the land, we've got a whole lot of the, the you know, the natural resources um, to actually make energy a positive for industry. We do indeed. Okay, look, great to talk to you, Peter. Um, I really appreciate your time and um, we'll look forward to talking to you in the future. My pleasure. Cyclones is pretty grim. Shocking. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. This is James Henry here and you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show and my name is Erin Jones. As you know, last week we spoke about the electrifying industry report that has just recently been launched. I think this is probably one of the most important pieces of research that we have done because we know that um, a large amount of emissions are from the industrial sector and, and manufacturing, and a lot of businesses involved in that se- sector have really been you know, hit hard by increased energy costs over the last number of years. For, for a great many years in the past, energy wasn't a huge factor in um, decision-making for a lot of those businesses, but that's certainly not been the case recently. So I thought it was really important that we have a chat to people within industry about um, what energy means for them and uh, what they see going forward as solutions to taking a bit of control over their energy costs. So I'm really pleased to have Simon Whiteley on the line and Simon is the Managing Director and Owner of Corex, a plastics manufacturing business in South East Melbourne. Welcome Simon. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. Thanks very much. Um, can you just describe to our listeners what type of business yours is and the, the scale and, and size and what you guys do? Yeah, yeah thank you. We're a, we're a plastics business, so we, we use energy basically to heat up plastic and extrude it into, into sheet form, and it's used in a variety of industries from uh, 
on-of-sale display signage right through to packaging and other applications in industrial uh, markets. Okay, and what sort of size um, are we talking about? What kind of employee numbers do you operate with? Yeah, we've got around 200, 200 staff on the, on the payroll that uh, working all through it. So we go, we're go. we a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week operation, um, and uh, obviously our business is about you know, obviously maintaining that capacity throughout. Mm, yeah. So can you describe for me you know, what does energy risk mean or look like for your business? Well, it, has, it definitely has more attention now, as, as you just mentioned earlier, in the sense that we're, uh, we're running 24 hours a day. We use, we use electricity to, to both heat the plastic up initially and then we use a lot of energy in terms of cooling and maintaining a, te- a constant temperature. That's a, that's a way that the, the machines work. So uh, running 24 hours a day, we're very flat on our energy requirement and uh, it's, it's a critical input to cost and it's, it's tripled in, cost, uh, in level now in the last, the last two to three years. Yeah, that, that's. I mean, that's got to have um, some fairly significant impact on um, your your budgeting and, and planning, isn't it? When you get costs go up by that sort of degree. Well, it does. When you when you look at capital, typically you've looked at it on a financial model about the initial capital cost and then paying the loan off, if you like, for the capital value. But now. Uh, an interesting aspect is we actually look at the energy footprint and uh, what that looks like over its life cycle. So uh, a machine might last 20 years and we we look at the energy side now as much as we do the capital. Mm, yeah, well, exactly. So so we've talked a little bit about the, that, um, that profile and the impact of that, but what kind of measurements are you putting in place or looking to in terms of mitigating that energy risk? You've, you've talked a little bit there about um, looking at the, the cost you know, over your planning, but have you looked at, we were talking at the um, Electrifying Industry Summit where we launched this work, we had a number of people there talking about a whole lot of different A technologies, but also, you know, things like people that are doing on-site generation or power purchase agreements, different behind-the-grid efficiencies, equipment upgrades and replacements. What are some of those measures that, that you're looking into going forward? You touch on two sides. One is the supply side, and that's about generating your own energy. And the other element is about actually consumption, about reducing your footprint. So on both sides, I'm spending a lot of time. Uh, the the input side, if you like, is when you look at you consider alternative technologies such as solar, battery technology, and the like. But the reality is, though, it's about energy footprint. How much energy you really need per, you know, in our case, per ton of plastic we make. So what I've been focused on is about where we're actually using it. So in that case, I'm actually measuring it by machinery. I think the, the Internet of Things is such as the general description. It's about measuring by machine how much energy is used per kilowatt on, on each individual work centres. And that's been a, uh, an opening that I've, I've never thought about before. And we've been using that to work out, as I said earlier, about looking at our footprint. Do we upgrade capital if it gives us a lower footprint per tonne? So we... We look at the actual cost on that side of it. It's, as I said, it's a, it's a very developing area. What's important for us, though, is about being the lowest cost producer, which is something that we can take up to, you know, in our case, Asian competitors, Southeast Asian competitors that tend to have lower wages and the like. We need to find ways to reduce our productivity, increase our productivity by reducing our capital costs in, in particular. Mm. So, what currently are the fuel? You know, what fuels your your manufacturing currently? Um, we use it off the grid. We've looked at. I mean, there's 
the, the easy one everyone looks at is energy for uh, using solar, for example, solar energy, which the footprint of the, the watts per panel, if you like, has increased probably 50% in the last three years. But the reality is, even if I covered our entire roof of our factory, which is over 10 acres, 40,000 metres site, um, I would only power energy for about one hour. So in other words, the solar panels would only give us the energy we need for that actual hour itself. So we don't have the capacity to... to well, it's uh, not a suitable recover. solution in, in exactly. your situation. Mm. But what I'm excited about, though, Aaron, at the moment is uh, battery technology. Not the lithium-ion batteries, which are the current sort of out there at the moment, but there's some of these new technology of liquid silicon and the like that have a density of about four to 500 times that of uh, lithium-ion. And what that would enable us is to, to basically time shift energy, to buy energy off in the grid at night and then use it, discharge it during the day. And I think that's the, that's the emerging area. And there's a couple of public uh, IPOs that have gone out in the last couple of years that are focused on that, and that's something that I'll, I'll be embracing in the future. So the heating that currently goes on in your factory, is that through electrical processes or gas-fired boilers, or, or how does that work currently? With plastics, initially you need heat, you need energy to heat it up. But once the, once the extruder, there's like an impeller inside a long a barrel, if you like, once it's, it's, uh, it's running, it generates its own heat. So then it becomes about cooling. So ironically, with plastic extrusion, it, you only need energy or heat, if you like, to start the process. And then after that, you're stabilizing the temperature profile when you extrude it. So we don't use, for that reason, we use electricity rather than gas. Yeah, okay. All right, because we, we did talk to, um, have some case studies of people that um, you know, had big gas boiler type systems and one of the technologies that we've researched as part of this work is things like replacing on a modular scale um, with heat pumps, industrial heat pumps, which some um, uh, some people aren't necessarily that familiar with, but they can be you know, much more effective and efficient. Their efficiency profile is much higher and certainly you don't have um, the transmission loss from, say, a centralised system that, that some manufacturers might be running. And, and when we're kind of looking at... Um, changeover effect, it's a system that can be changed over in a modular fashion as opposed to a sort of whole of factory. Um, but that's interesting with, with plastics, um, it's more about cooling. No, sorry, you're quite right. I, I did look at um, going to, you know, to uh, ultimately try generation but, uh, in terms of using gas. And, and the, the equivalent number, it, everyone argues with me, but it's about 105 uh, to, to one. In other words, when the gas price at the moment was hitting the numbers it has been in the last few years, it's not viable to no. use gas to generate. But if you were building a greenfield from from scratch and you were using the energy in multiple ways within your plant, from processing to cooling or whatever you, ha- what you require, they would definitely stack up. But yeah, there's a it's, there's definitely a, a tipping point, and at the moment, it's unfortunately it's uh, not not suitable for what we want to require to change. Yeah, and I mean, look, we you know our work is showing that you can move away from gas, and there's lots of um, other alternatives depending on the level of heat that you need. And certainly, a lot of manufacturers are producing heat for the highest temperature that they require, which is a waste because some of their some of their processes don't require that. And through you know different um, technologies, whether it be microwave or um, induction or heat pumps, you know, are much much more efficient and effective so we're trying to kind of put out there that there are other information and and obviously you're running a fairly big organisation but as you will well know a lot of um, operations are running a lot smaller numbers and a lot smaller sort of um, businesses and 
don't necessarily have the ability to have someone thinking about this with the um, the degree of attention that it needs because uh, you know something like eighty uh, percent of um, small manufacturer of manufacturing have less than twenty employees, and so for some of them, you know, we're kind of trying to do this research to show them that there are viable alternatives. Absolutely, and I think that's, that's the key point. Is it's scalable. All the stuff we're talking about is you can scale, scale it up or down depending on the size of your business because energy at the moment, you know, it represents a significant cost that is not productive. In other words, you need the energy and that's where you might, you might, you mentioned a moment ago about 20 people. It doesn't really matter what they are. It's about saying, are I getting the cost, I, uh, the cost level I need in order to, to develop the, uh, the product that I'm trying to market out there? And I think that's what the key thing is for us is, as, a, as a manufacturing community is about what's, What's your energy footprint look like? It's one thing to talk about the energy side of how you generate that energy you require in your plant. The other side is, is consumption. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there, and that's what I've been focusing on as well, using a, um, a company called Symbol, which uh, is a list, just listed only earlier this year. And what they're doing for me is they're, they're measuring down at a micro level by machinery. So I know by the plant centre how much energy it's using uh, looking at it, and then I can measure that against other KPIs for productivity. And I think that's been insightful in particular because I've worried about uh, how efficient we use energy and a lot of things come down to power factor and other elements that you look at. But what I've found with this one is it, it's allowed me then to, to focus on is that machine more productive than its new you know, uh, machine that I'm replacing it with or is it in fact um, just as productive? And that's what we've been focusing on is working out to help with the capital equation I mentioned earlier. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's obviously given you a lot of information to then go on and make those decisions. And how common do you think that is amongst, um, you know, other manufacturers to have that level of knowledge and understanding of what they're actually doing? Well, as I said, in my case, I, I became acutely focused on it after, you know, the change in energy prices. And for our business, we're relatively energy intense compared to others. Um, so I... I yeah, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a relevant question by business, but certainly when you look at a cost that you can't control you know, readily by changing people or you know, machinery, you then work out um, how, what's important to making sure you're competitive against, particularly when you're exporting it. So it's probably a subjective question to ask. Now, you're also involved in the South East Melbourne Manufacturers Alliance and... Um you're currently a board member and have previously been a chair, as I understand. What sort of feedback are you getting from um, other members of that organisation? I mean, you know, we've we've seen stories of some businesses not just just not being able to absorb these kind of doubling and trebling of energy costs. How has that affected the members? Yes, it looks them as a big body of uh, manufacturers, and unlike other organisations, we're not a lobby group as such. We're actually about other members of manufacturing. I think there's a you know hundred and you know, sorry seven or eight billion dollars of uh, of sales and a hundred thousand employees among our members. And we we look at we look at our footprint in terms of um, saying because a lot of the time it's misunderstood. Energy is one of those misunderstood commodities. No one's really clear how it's priced. Um, particularly in the current climate, because there's, as you know, there's three elements to it. There's the generation, uh, there's distribution and uh, of the power, and then ultimately the retail side. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's public knowledge that the retail side has been very profitable, and that's why 
previously where there might have been 50 different competitors. Now there's only down to, I think, three control 70% of the market now. So these other brands are actually um, just effectively just branding, if you like, for, uh, for large organisations. And I don't think that was foreseen by the uh, the the instigators who pushed for the competitive market in the first place. Consequently, we're all paying a massive premium. What I what I have seen, though, over the 20 years I've been a competitive uh, uh, client, I've been I've been able to buy our power off the market since uh, the mid 90s. Is I've seen a shift where it was 70 percent of the energy price was from the poles and wires and generation. Now that's about 35 percent, and the retail side now has become more than 50% of the, of the cost and that's, that's been a, a big change for us in Britain. So you spoke earlier about the fact that um, your energy needs don't really make it applicable to do on-site generation or certainly possibly not enough on-site generation. Have you looked into um, you know, off-site, uh, whether it's a standalone, you know, building your own solar farm such as Sun Metals in Queensland have done or going into a power purchase agreement with a you know wind or solar manufacturer. Are those options that, that you've considered? Yes, of course. Uh, I've explored um, on both, both, both um, occasions. The issue has been about uh, you know, how... Um, it's, it's more about looking... Like solar, for example, is really a bet on the future. Is the energy price going to fall related to what you can buy today? That's really what that, that pricing model looks like. When you when you come to the, the partnership um, you mentioned before in solar and buying it buying it external to the site, what does that look like in terms? Of, are you prepared to lock in today's price going forward? In other words, are you betting, if you like, that the price will will rise or stay the same going forward into the future? And the horizon for those things is probably seven to ten years out. And so the issue you've got then is... You, you when you say 7 to 10 years out, can you just clarify what, what you mean there? Oh, in terms of 7 to 10 years out on the current price. So if you're entering into a price today, is the current price you're buying now going to be stable going forward for the next 10, 10 years, effectively? Mm-hmm. In, in other words, you get your cash flow, get your cash flow payback on your investment. And that's the bit we're unsure about because we've already been through three cycles now in the same last... If I looked at the last 10 years as precedent... Um, we saw the carbon tax introduced, we saw it taken out again, and that was a 20% fall in pricing initially straight away. We then saw the advancement back in pricing going forward in the last couple of years the market tightened up, but I think that's more a reflection on market forces in concentration of retail side as opposed to you know, generation side, because the, the basic premise that I'm working to is that there's enough capacity in the, in the, in the Australian grid but the poles and wire distribution itself is the limitation, so they can't get power around as readily. And then we saw this last year when Hazelwood closed in Victoria. I mean, I'm based in Danville, and power then suddenly became uh, generation relatively became from say Queensland or New South Wales. Suddenly, our loss rates increased on the line. And so when you look at the power bill, you can see the loss rate. In other words, the power the power is being generated further further afield than local, and of course, the efficiency was lost and that was passed on to us through the poles and wires uh, pricing. Mm, okay. I mean, our projections showing that by 2028, solar and wind energy could be 40% cheaper than today. And, I mean, those price drops are just going to, to continue. Um, are you thinking that that then will be reflected in network and in, you know, buying from a, from a retailer? The solar and wind is cheap when it's producing, but I don't... 
if you look at it on finance models are based on time, not based on when they produce energy. So if you look at it on time, you would have to say, I don't buy that number. You know, it might well be cheaper to produce because obviously the the, the origin of the energy itself is free, it's from the, the environment. But what you don't see is the actual time that the wind's not blowing. You know, it's, it's obviously almost political now, but unfortunately the reality is, you know, yes, it's cheap to produce and, and get the energy, but they obviously the footprint becomes limited to those windows where it's able to, to actually give a positive valuation. That's really the issue at the moment. So I, do, I think batteries are going to, um, and, and approving, I mean, there's some, some reports come out about the effect that the Tesla battery in South Australia has had at the um, Horns um, Bee yeah. Farm. Uh, so so I, I, th- I think, that, you know, yes, absolutely, solar and wind intermittent, um, but as we get more and more... Uh, storage facilities um, built and the cost of that continues to come down and, and like any sort of new technology they're on a steep cost curve downwards in a downwards trajectory so I, I think we can um, you know, that will only get cheaper well, you're right. I'm on on, value, on capital value. Absolutely. I, I just uh, the Hornsby one. Though, what, where that place is really made money is about, about um, not so much about supplying energy to the grid. It's about regulating and holding the voltage, and uh, it's been very profitable. So, uh, yeah, I think you're right. There's, there's a space for all these technologies. It's just the mix that they have that gives the reliability or otherwise, and that's something that probably needs to be discussed more. Yeah, and that's certainly something that's come out um, around. Uh, you know, education and um, information with um, with industry, and particularly maybe those smaller players who don't have the, the um, resources to dedicate, a, you know, the, the human hours to that. Um, but certainly, that's what we're kind of pleased about getting this research out to show that it can happen, and there's a whole lot of other technologies that people may not be aware of in terms of, um, you know, whether they be. As I said, electromagnetic, microwave, electric furnace arc, and a whole, whole lot of yeah, others. So yeah. um, that's what we think is important in trying trying to get that out there to, to other members. Um, one, sorry, Eric, one thing that would, would be good, though, would be a change in policy on um, the distribution network. At the moment, it's been regulated by large-scale you know, energy plants, if you like, putting power on the grid. But I'll give you an example where what I saw as an opportunity, say, in, in the southeast, is a lot of my neighbouring factories are just warehouses. And their energy footprint's very low. And I looked at the opportunity to try and put, say, solar panels across five different factories mm-hmm. in the area, six factories, and then use the network lines to put the energy back in the, and then obviously I'll draw it back into our own plants for our own transformers. So sort of a, a localised grid system? Correct, yes. Yeah. But, but part of the, inter- the infrastructure of the whole area. The issue I had, though, is that any megawatt I transferred on the grid, whether it was going you know, 500 metres or 100 kilometres or what have you, it was still charged at a, a, a rate that was it was cost inhibitive. I think it was like $9,000 a megawatt or something, you know, which is the current rate. <laughs> it's usually it's in the 100. Sometimes it's in 9,000, but... 
we were trying to actually work out how we could make this of these micro sites, and that's that's something at the moment the regulation or legislation, should I say, that supports it is not focused on. It's not about how do we make these like micro sites or uh, regions. Mm. At the moment, it's all about the, the large scale stuff. So that's something that I would like to see change from a government level to support that kind of uh, you know, initiative to try and make things happen. Well, I think that's a really interesting point because that is something that came up at the summit, um, and we had a few uh, state government representatives there, and they were very keen to hear on those uh, about those type of. Um, impediments to what you're describing, kind of setting up a localised microgrid. Um, and it's something that they're actually looking to really push. So I'd um, yeah, encourage you to, um, and we might talk off here and give you a name that was that actually spoke about that, that exact um, example that you've given, um, not, not your site, but... Oh, good. The creation of that. So it's something that they were, are, they're very aware of and they want to um, kind of see how they can facilitate more of that happening. Um, all right, well, look, I really appreciate you talking to us. I know that you're away on um, a break, um, so it's great that you've made the time and I do appreciate your time. And, um, yeah, we'll look forward to... One of the great things that's come out of this research, and it's not only our research that's shown this, but we know going forward that there is a real opportunity uh, for Australia with the natural resources that it has to be a home for energy-intensive industries. You know, we've had Liberty One Steel, um, you know, building major infrastructure and identifying that that's why, you know, They've identified that Australia is the place to do this because of the abundance of, of land, sunlight, wind. Um, and so whilst there's you know this pain at the moment, um, we're hoping that in the future when there's a bit more of a transition and I think the policymakers are going to be left in the dirt because the economics of it just are starting to more and more stack up and the technology is coming online. But um, we're kind of going through a, a difficult transition phase. It is. It's definitely a learning curve on on, uh, on all sides. But the main thing is about there's a focus. You know, end of the day, with you know, I'm father of children myself, it's about focusing on the future. You don't want to leave a, a legacy or a you know pollution or what have you on the background. You actually want to make sure there's a footprint that that's something my children raise with me. I've got teenage children and. Uh, that's what they focus on. They say, "What's your what's your energy footprint, Dad?" You know, and uh, it's something I think that it resonates with everyone. Yeah, exactly. All right, I appreciate your time, Simon. Great to no. chat with you. Uh, pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank Bye bye. So that was a couple of. Uh conversations that I've had recently about this electrifying industries work. Um, I'm uh, pleased to try to get it out there more. It's certainly an important piece of the puzzle to moving towards zero emissions across all the um, different realms of, of the community. So I appreciate those guests joining me, Peter Hansford and Simon Whiteley. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, as always, we're happy to have feedback at radioteam at bze.org.au. Contact me and um, let me know what you think or if there's a story that you think we should follow up. You can get me on my Twitter handle at ej4573. So for now, I'll say goodbye and I'll see you in a few weeks. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans 
that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel based economy with its climate changing emissions to a zero